All right, let's open our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. As we embark on the study of verses 8 through 15 of 1 Timothy chapter 2, I want you to know that I do so with respect and also with the understanding that this is a sensitive area in Christian churches today. And it was apparently a sensitive topic for the Christian churches in Paul's day as well, particularly in Ephesus. We should keep in mind before we move into this section of the epistle, two things with regard to the Christian's responsibility in the church. Two things at least with regard to these verses. The first, and it's a very important thing, and that is that men and women are created equal before God. There is no superiority for either men or for women. The Apostle Paul said in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now by saying that, he didn't mean that there was no such thing as a Jew or a Greek. Of course, if a person had Jewish uh, genetics before they came, became a believer, they had Jewish genetics after they became a believer. Certainly, if a person was a slave before they became a believer, they remained a slave after they became a believer. And males before they were saved are still males after they're saved, as are females before they're saved and females after they're saved. It doesn't mean that there is no distinction in the sense that there's no differences between males and females, or slave and free, or Jew and Greek. But it means that within the body of Christ, before God, there are no distinctions. Now, there may be different roles. There are different roles, and we're about to embark on a study of some of these different roles. But they are, there's no superiority ladder when it comes to function or position, rather, within the body of Christ. This was taught all the way back by Moses in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, when he said, And God created him, or God created, rather, man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That's Genesis 1.27. He created mankind, more of a generic word, mankind in his own image. And then Moses goes on to say, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So both male and female are created in the image of God. And therefore, both male and female have value before God. And there is no, superior, or there is no place of superiority for either male or female. Sometimes folks would believe that God put males in a position of superiority, and the females get mad about that. Sometimes females act like they were created in a position of superiority, and males get mad about that. There is no superiority before God. I hope you understand that. There are different roles, different functions that human beings might attach superiority to, but God has not attached superiority to these functions. Differences in role or roles does not imply superiority in position when it comes to facing God. We learn this uh, even in our study of the Trinity. A classic diagram of the Trinity would look something like this. It would look like a triangle. And this is a very ancient diagram, actually, de uh, depicting the triune God. Uh, most would put a circle at each end of the triangle, or at each, at each corner of the triangle, representing the three members of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we know that the Father is not the Son. They are two distinct persons. That the Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father. Yet, since they share identical essence 
exactly identical essence to be redundant. We know that the Father is God. The Son is God. And the Holy Spirit is God. Jesus Christ is not the Father. The Son is not the Father. Yet He is God. He's every bit as much God as the Father is. And the same way with the Holy Spirit's relationship with the Son and the Holy Spirit's relationship with the Father. The reason I bring this up is because there was a time, a point in time in the early part of the first century, where the Son incarnate submitted himself willingly, voluntarily to the leadership of the Father. The Father had leadership, the Son submitted. Does that make the Son inferior to the Father? You better real quick shake your head no. I mean, do it real fast, because otherwise you do great damage to the doctrine of the Trinity. They are co-equal persons. Just because one submitted to the leadership of another didn't mean that that one who submitted was not equal in every way to the one that he submitted to. When I do weddings today, these days rather, uh, i got to tell you, sometimes they're a little bit of a pain. Uh, and the reason they're a pain, I want to tell you right up front, is because of the 20-somethings that are there. Usually the 20-something women, not always, and you can just hear them. You can feel them cringe when I say something about submitting to the leadership of your husband. And, oh, boy, you talk about if looks could kill. I mean, if, if that could actually happen, I'd have been dead a whole lot of times. But they do that until I explain this. Once it's explained that the wife is in no way inferior to her husband because she submits to her leadership. And the example for that submission is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. At least Christian women, I have found, have much less of a problem with it. Once they realize that the role model for both the husband and the wife in the marriage is, is Jesus Christ. Once husbands realize that his role model is Jesus Christ, who loved the church and gave himself for it, and that the wife's role model in marriage is Jesus Christ, who willingly submitted himself to one with whom he had been eternally equal, was, is, and always will be eternally equal, then the whole idea of superiority in a relationship before God... Uh, becomes something of a, um, of a moot point. Before God, husband and wife are equal, even though there's a, a leadership structure there in a church. No one should ever think that the pastor is superior before God or the deacons or, or any other person, a song leader or a, a pianist or whoever it may be that has more of a public ministry is actually superior in their position before God. No, not at all. In Christ, there's no distinction. Paul could have put in Christ, there's no distinction between Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female, piano player, violin player. It, it doesn't matter. We're all equal before God. Yet we have different roles. I say this going into it because this is a this is a section of God's word of God's word that is that angers some people. I, I taught a class for Paul last week when he was out of town, and, and he so graciously gave me this was issues in theology. He graciously gave me the a, a women's role in the church issue. Uh, I, I, uh, I'm. Uh, I'm thankful for the opportunity to, to uh, handle that. And, uh, 
and one of the one of the dear sweet guys toward the end of the lecture, and one of the ladies that was sitting next to him uh, disagreed with everything I said, which is fine. Uh, that, uh, that's their choice. Uh, but uh, the reason for the disagreement wasn't legitimate. I don't know if I told you this or not. But but he said, that's just the Apostle Paul's opinion. I said, really? <laughs> uh, would you take that with all the commands? He said, well, you know, what about flea fornication? I mean, is that the Apostle Paul's opinion? Anyway, uh, the point is, what I'm about to, the study that we're, that we're embarking on is like everything else we study. It's the Word of God. Now, you can look at it a couple different ways. You can look at it like, it's not, to a reasonable person, it's not offensive. Once you understand the triune Godhead and the examples... Or, if you're still in rebellion, you can look at it like, this is God's word, get over it. Either way is okay with me, but, I, but you're going to do yourself a whole lot less psychological damage if you realize that this should not be offensive to you. There is no reason why it should. I got stopped by a police officer the other day. He had, I know, I, above, the whole above reproach thing, that's why we're going to wait a few weeks to, to do that one. When he, put, when he put his red lights on, I pulled over. I promise you, during the whole conversation, not once did I think he was superior to me. But he did have authority over me for, those, for that particular episode. A referee at a football game. I never thought one was superior to me. But when they threw the flag and said, you get back over here, I, I went back over there. You, you see the point? Okay. So the first point is that, that uh, different roles don't imply superiority and position before God. Now, one word of caution, uh, all joking aside, about this whole um, feminist thing. Being feminine, listen to my words carefully now, being feminine is a wonderful thing, provided you're female, of course. <laughs> but but, but, but the, word, the word feminine is a great word, Okay. Provided that's your role. <laughs> but to be a feminist is not. And I want to draw the distinction now before we get through these, this uh, material. Being feminine is incredible. But being a feminist is not consistent with the Christian truth. The feminist movement, what can also be called the militant feminist movement, is not consistent with Christian truth. The only reason I have to say that now is in, and even in evangelical circles, you'll hear about Christian feminism or Christian feminists, and they're doing themselves great harm by going down that road. I just want to issue you a warning about that. Uh, we shouldn't be ashamed to be males before God. We shouldn't be ashamed to be females before God. I remember there was a, a Christian ed class that I had one time, and the professor of that class, I won't name him, but he's a, he's a friend of mine now. But we, we didn't start off on, on real good footing uh, because I, I questioned some stuff. He, uh, some folks he brought to the class, he questioned my right to question who he brought to class. So we clashed a little bit. But one day he announced that, that we were going to have a forum at the next class. And during that forum, there would be three Christian feminists that would be our speakers. And he had got to know me just a little bit. So he pointed to the back of the class and he said... There will be no arguing with these women that come in. And then he pointed directly to me and said, and I don't want anybody quoting any Bible verses to any of these women. 
say, I won't. If that's, if, that's the, if that's the rule, that's the rule. Well, the three ladies came in, and, and actually they were quite charming for the most part, until, until one of them threw this out. If you men knew your Bibles a little better than you think you do, then you wouldn't be spouting some of the things against women that you're espousing. Well, that's red meat. (laughs) But I couldn't. I couldn't say anything. I couldn't argue with them, and I couldn't bring up any biblical passage. Those were the parameters. So I just, when it came time to raise my hand, I did, and and the particular professor looked over at me like, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kick you out of this class. I told you. And so I, I just ask a question in the form of, you know, how people do statements, you know. And I said, when I was coming over to this class this afternoon at lunch, I heard a report on ABC News, this is the truth, it was very ironic, that, that uh, women across the board in the United States are statistically, percentage-wise, more unhappy with their marriages and with their family life than at any time in the history of taking that particular poll. It went back several decades. And so I said that to her. I heard that. I said to the one who had just asked us if we knew our Bibles, I said, Would, uh, could you possibly give me an opinion as to why that might be, even within Christian homes? And she thought for a minute, and she said, Well, I'd probably have to say the feminist movement. No further questions, Your Honor. No. Well, that was because it made the point. You see, it's just, and I was able to do it without, the, without getting thrown out of the class, and it was close because one of my dear friends, one of my dear friends went up to the professor afterwards and said, hey, do you think Baumgartner was really asking a question or was he trying to make a point? <laughs> and he said, what do you think? Well, anyway, I, but, but some things you just can't let slide. That's, uh, but, but being feminine is great. Being a feminist, being a feminist carries with it certain problems. Now, also, I want you to remember, in context here, the second major point, in context here, Paul is speaking about how we should conduct ourselves in the household of God. In other words, the local church. Now, while some of the prescriptions that Paul makes may, may have significance in other situations, Paul is speaking here specifically to life within the local church. He says in 1 Timothy 3.15, I'm writing so that you know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the supporter of truth. So since Paul is speaking specifically to issues that involve the local church, that's what I'm going to speak specifically about. We're not going to get off into uh, the business, the workplace, or, or a university, or anything like that. We're going to stay with what Paul is uh, we'll just stay with his subject. Now, before we get to that, let's look at verse 8, because Paul is going to conclude his, his exhortation that uh, we should be praying, uh, entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings on behalf of all men. He's going to conclude that with an exhortation to the men, and then we'll see the beginnings of the exhortation to the women at this church in Ephesus uh, or the, to the church, churches in Ephesus. So look at verse 8 first. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and without dissension. When Paul says in every place, he's probably referring 
to wherever Christians assemble in local church congregations, at least from the context. Now, there's a contrast that you'll see between verses 8 and verses 9 regarding the roles of men and women, or the primary roles of men and women in the church. And I'll point that out in just a moment. But the prayers in verse 1 were to be made on behalf of all men. Now, what Paul is speaking of in this particular verse is how that's to work out. He talked about it with regard to principle. Now he's going to speak about functionally how would that look. And functionally, it is, he's speaking about how, it is, how has this worked out in the context of the local church, or in the context of, more specifically, public worship. What he's saying here, therefore I want the men, and this particular word men here is not the generic word for mankind, anthropos, it's the, it's the term on there, it's, the, it's a specific word for male. Typically, Paul says, men should take the lead in praying when it's done publicly and in church. In a healthy local church, the men or the males will lead in public prayer. Now, there has been some confusion over Paul's assertion here. And some hold, and I know that some of you do because you've been very gracious and come and spoken with me about this, uh, that some hold that women should not pray publicly in church. But Paul is not saying that here. That's going beyond what the text is saying. Rather, he's speaking of leadership in public prayer. Women pray occasionally in our public prayer meetings. But you might notice that men always lead the group. I always lead, or Paul always leads, or Will always leads the, the public prayer session. Now, in public prayer, this gives me an opportunity to, to speak about that for just a moment. Um, when, when we pray publicly, we should pray as briefly as we can pray and still get the thought expressed. Why? Because everyone else is trying to pray along with us. And if we get too flowery, flowery in, in our words, our terminology it tends to cause the minds of those who are listening along to wander a bit. So a polite public prayer is going to be one that is shorter rather than longer. Does that make sense? Those of you that are attempting to follow along are amening this, I'm sure, privately in your mind. You want it, you want it to be something that can be followed. So public prayer should be shorter rather than longer. I never will forget the illustration that was used uh, of Dr. J. Vernon McGee. McGee didn't use this illustration. People talked about him in this particular situation. One time at the Church of the Open Door, the, um, there was a man who had been invited to come up and give one of the opening prayers uh, to open the worship service. And the man droned on and on and on and on and on and on. And McGee being McGee, bless his heart, he finally got up from where he was seated, seated went up to the microphone right next to the man, and he said, while Brother Jones here finishes his prayer, why don't the rest of us turn to hymn number 302, let's stand and we'll sing. Um, now, I don't know many pastors that would have the guts to do that, but McGee did. <laughs> so we do want to keep our public prayers shorter rather than longer, simply so they can be followed. Otherwise, it's not, it's, it's not as effective as it would be when, when we pray publicly and you're praying and I'm listening to you pray. I'm privately amening that. 
You know, I may say, yes, Father, yes. I'm not saying it out loud, but amen to that, Father. Yes, I pray for those military people too. You know, I'm following along with the person that's praying. So shorter rather than longer is a courteous public prayer. There should be, unless you're the pastor, and we always, the pastors reserve the right to do this, but nobody else, we should not sermonize in our prayers, not in our public prayers. Now, pastors reserve the rights because if there's something that we forgot in our sermon and we realized it while we're praying, we'll, we'll oftentimes bring it back in at that point. That's an occupational secret, but I'll tell you we do that. You'll be able to spot it now when I do. Um, but uh, we try not to. If, if you're having to sermonize in your prayer, something went wrong during the, the uh, sermon time. So there should be no sermonizing in a prayer. Uh, sermonizing means that you're not speaking to God, you're speaking to the audience. You see the subtle difference? Also, you don't perform in a prayer. Did you know that? You're talking to God. There are a lot of folks that won't pray publicly because, uh, because they might be intimidated. You know, look how well this particular brother prays. You know what? God doesn't care. He really doesn't care. He doesn't care how eloquent you are. He cares how sincere your heart is. He cares if you're walking in fellowship with him. That's the first prerequisite to all praying. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me, Psalm 66. But if you're walking in fellowship with God, God doesn't care if you stumble and stammer. And guess what? Neither do we. Neither do we. So please don't be intimidated about praying publicly. We're on your side when you do. Believe me. There is nobody being critical of someone else's public prayer that I know about, and if they are, they, they sure better never tell me, because I'll be first calling on you next time to do the public prayer. So that's going to be your punishment if you ever complain. <laughs> so don't express it. Please don't express it to anybody, because you'll be the next one I call on. There should be, a, a, along the same line, no teaching in a prayer. Uh, that's, uh, that is out of bounds. Public, I'm talking about public prayers, and certainly private ones as well, without regard to that. Public prayers are, are fairly simply making requests and giving thanks and praise. But it's not sermonizing. It's not going on and on. It's not taking the opportunity to teach. It's not taking the opportunity to correct the pastor's message. I had somebody try to do that one time. Do you remember that one? That was, that was quite a day. But... Um, but just a, just a couple items about public prayer. Paul's instruction on how they should pray follows with emphasis on inner holiness and outward righteousness with regard to the behavior of those who lead or pray publicly. He didn't command the, pray, the men to pray with upraised hands. This is a misunderstanding of this verse as well. He says, Therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and without dissension. Now, the, the emphasis is more on the holy, the, without wrath and without dissension, as it is on the posture. The hands that one lifts up in prayer should be holy hands. They should be hands, the hands of a person that has confessed their sins before God and has been cleansed from all unrighteousness. That's the emphasis, not the lifting up. There are many postures that are given in the Scriptures for prayer. In Genesis chapter 18, 1 Samuel chapter 1, Matthew chapter 6, for example, public prayers are said to be in a standing position. But that's not a prescription. Sometimes we pray sitting down. Other times, the scriptures even talk about praying on your knees. But we have examples of people praying in a standing position. There are examples of people praying with their hands spread out or lifted heavenward. In Exodus 9, Exodus 17, 
1 Kings, Nehemiah, Psalm 63, and so forth, mostly in the Old Testament or in Hebrew Bible. Ron Allen, who was with us shortly, not, not a very long time ago, said that in, with regard to the Jewish custom, they, they didn't, when they prayed with their hands lifted toward heaven, they would have never prayed like this, like the modern day charismatic prefers to, to pray. They would have prayed with their hands facing them, waiting for a blessing from God. This was a posture. So if, if that's the way the Lord leads you to pray, then do it. But don't do it because everybody else is doing it that way. You see, that, that's where it becomes phony and illegitimate. The scriptures also talk about bowing our head. In prayer, in Genesis chapter 24, Exodus chapter 12, and Second Chronicles chapter 29. The scriptures speak of lifting heavenward our eyes in prayer. Now see, that's almost contradictory to bow on the head, isn't it? So, so this is, these are not prescriptions. These are descriptions of various ways that people have prayed and has been recorded. Also praying, kneeling, which again is is somewhat contradictory to praying standing, so they can't be prescriptions. God doesn't work that way. Here's one that um, I've done. I don't know if you have, but if you hadn't, you probably hadn't. One of these days you'll be in the situation where you need to. Falling down with face upon the ground in prayer. Genesis 17, 3, 24, Genesis, uh, Numbers 14, Numbers 16, and so on. Actually, probably 20 different references to that. Of all the postures, that's the one that's mentioned most, believe it or not. And they didn't have clean carpets. They had dusty rugs and uh, perhaps dusty floors as well. There are other postures that are mentioned. For example, in 1 Kings, bowing with the face between the knees. And in Luke chapter 18, standing from afar and striking the breast. But here, Paul is simply describing public praying as Christians commonly practiced it in Paul's day. It was common in Paul's day for a man when he prayed to pray this way. So what Paul is saying is, if you're going to lift up your hands in prayer, make sure they're holy hands. He's talking about what's going on inside, not so much outside. To lift up holy hands, to lift up hands that are without wrath, without anger. You see, an angry Christian, someone who is, is carrying that around in their soul, someone who has not confessed that anger and been cleansed of it, is not going to be a very effective prayer. Because they're not walking in fellowship with God and without dissension. See, a Christian who breeds dissension within the local church, they can pray all they want to, but everybody's listening to that prayer saying, boy, I don't like them. See, and and that, that messes, to use a good Texas term, messes with the dynamics of the whole idea of public prayer. Pictures on the walls of the catacombs and other early Christian artwork show people praying this way at the time of Paul. Commonly, they raised their palms upward and open to heaven to symbolize their inner openness to God and their desire to offer praise to God and to obtain a gift from Him. So they're receiving a blessing this way, not pushing one away. They're receiving one. You see the difference in the, in the posture. If you want to know some, some aspect, just ask Ron Allen. He knows, he knows all those things. If Paul meant that men were to lift up their physical hands when they prayed, he, might, he very probably would have not describe the hands as holy, but holy wrath and dissension all point to a metaphorical use of the word hands. Our hands symbolize what we do. Paul wanted the men to pray as they practiced holiness in their everyday lives. Listen, posture in prayer 
does not render the prayer more or less effective. It simply reflects the inner attitude of the person praying. You you probably don't have to have three guesses as to what my inner attitude when I told you I've prayed with my face flat down on the ground was. Uh, Utter helplessness. I mean, that's about, as, that's about as, uh, the physical position that, that would describe utter helplessness more than any other position. Now, I wasn't expecting that prayer to be answered more effectively because I was in that position. That just was reflecting what was in my heart at that time. You know, sometimes we pray kneeling because that reflects what's in our heart. Sometimes you pray sitting down. Sometimes you pray standing up. Sometimes you pray when you're driving your car. The posture does not render the prayer more or less effective, but it reflects the inner attitude of the person praying. So that's what he wanted the men to do. At least that's the first of some responsibilities that we'll learn. Now the women. He's going to have the first of some responsibilities that are given to the women. Read verses 9 and 10 with me. These verses also have been, I believe, either misunderstood or misunderstood and misapplied by a fairly large segment of the Christian population. Listen to what he says. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing modestly and discreetly the word discreetly is probably the key word to understanding this this particular passage not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly garments but rather by means of good works as befits women making a claim to godliness so the responsibility of the women was to was to present themselves in a way that would reflect who they are in Christ now, some people have taken these verses, and I don't need to go into depth as to who they are, but, but there are some factions within Christianity that believe that, that, at least the men believe, that their wives should do as much as they can to make themselves look as unattractive as they can make themselves look. And that's not what this passage is saying. Actually, far from it. Paul's point in these verses is that works that express a godly character should characterize Christian women more than their hairstyle or their dress or their jewelry. The contrast is between works and wardrobe, not between one type of wardrobe and another type of wardrobe. Paul was not saying that external appearance is unimportant. He's not saying that. But what he is saying is that internals are more important than the externals. I hope this makes sense. Women are to dress in good taste when they prepare to attend church. They're, they're to dress wisely. This particular word is translated discreetly, but they're to dress wisely, appropriate to the circumstance and the situation. Allow me to use an illustration that, that might appear crude. I don't mean it that way. I honestly don't, but I think it will it'll make the point. There's a, there's a place for certain forms of dress, and then depending on the particular circumstance. For example, if you were to take a woman who would dress herself, and we'll just use the women here, but the men are, men are by implication included in this as well. If you were to take a woman and, and dress her 
in a in a 1930s bathing suit. You know the ones I'm talking about? They, they came down to the legs and, and up high. And then sent her down to Galveston. People might actually look, but only because it would be almost out of place. Because it would, it would be... Uh, so different from what everyone else was addressed at in that particular place. But take that same woman in that same bathing suit and have her, to co- have her come to church in that bathing suit on a Sunday morning. And you see, even though it was very ultra-modest at the beach, it would not be considered ultra-modest on a Sunday morning in a worship service. You, you see the point? Because that's not the place for a bathing suit. The beach is the place for a bathing suit, not on a Sunday morning, not in a Sunday morning worship service. So dress for a worship service should be appropriate to the worship service. Now sometimes, sometimes there are folks that will come in and maybe the dress is not appropriate. Maybe they weren't thinking that day. And maybe some eyes will start darting over. We'll stop it. <laughs> you, don't, you don't need to do that. We don't need to also, as, as I know of in one church, where the, 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 the pianist had, had worn a, a dress that some thought was too short. They gave her such a hard time, she quit playing the piano at the church. She didn't mean anything by that. And we need to have enough flexibility not, not to let evil thoughts run through our mind every, every time we see a, a skirt that's not below the knees. Let's be reasonable about it. We, we need to dress wisely. Now, the, the, the admonition is to the women, but it goes for men as well. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly, discreetly, not with braided hair, with gold or pearls or costly garments. Now, this doesn't mean if you've got a gold uh, chain with a cross around your neck tonight or, or a piece of jewelry that you're sinning in any way. That's not the point. The point is a contrast between what's in your heart and what's on your body. You see, in, in Paul's day, there were, uh, there were um, indications that, uh, we, there are indications from history that in Paul's day, the, the um, wanton women, uh, perhaps the, the prostitutes of that time, they would dress this way. They would dress with braided hair. And one of the things that the Christian women were apparently buying into is they were, they were beginning to dress that same way so that some of the Christian women couldn't be distinguished from some of the cult prostitutes. It's my understanding, now it's a little cloudy, but it's my understanding that that's similar to what was going on in Corinth as well, when Paul has a discussion about the length of women's hair. So Paul is just saying, don't dress like that. Don't be confused with one of those folks. But on the other hand, sloppiness in dress and appearance is not a virtue. All of us, male, female, should do the best we can with what God has given us in taking care of this physical tent that he's given us. We're not Platonists. We don't believe that this body is totally valueless. This, this body does have value. But Paul is just saying it would be inappropriate to spend eight hours preparing yourself physically to come to church when at least a portion of that time could have been spent in a more godly pursuit. You see the point? We should do the best we can with what we have. Sloppiness is not a virtue. Um, If you're wearing a, a gold necklace, 
this, this passage is not talking about you. But if tonight you put no thought into what was going to happen here, and you spent most of your afternoon dolling yourself up so that you could impress, simply impress the other people, and they say, wow, did you see her? Then, that, then this passage is talking to you. And if the, if the shoe fits, wear it. If it doesn't, then don't. It is a contrast between what's on the inside and what's on the outside. I can explain it to you in one phrase. I would have done this earlier, but then uh, I wouldn't have had as long of a sermon. <laughs> Remember when your mama told you, pretty is as pretty does? Remember that? That's this passage right here. Pretty is as pretty does. Now, that doesn't mean that you dress in a gunny sack and put dust on your head to come to church. That's not the point. And pretty much every pastor that, has ever, that I've ever heard preach this passage gets themselves in trouble by going too far with this, so I'm going to let it go. But I want you to, to remember that spiritual qualities, spiritual qualities should mark a Christian lady always. Of course. However, Paul's concern was that they be especially evident in church meetings, especially at church. The woman's character and conduct would contribute to the orderly and edifying activities then rather than distracting from them. So here's the rule. If male and female, but again, particularly, this is addressed to the ladies. If what you're wearing could be a distraction to someone else at church, then love them enough not to wear that. Okay? It's, it's pretty simple. In this passage, Paul gives these instructions primarily to men in leading public prayer in verse 8 and to the women in verses 9 through 10, partly to counteract the natural or the fleshly tendencies in males and females. Because you see, most men tend to be very active. So it's important that men be exhorted to give some attention to public prayer, to slow down, to slow down enough to take time to pray, which is admittedly more contemplative than it is active. It's thought rather than action. Women naturally enjoy looking good. So they need to remember that good deeds are more important than good looks. Activity is not wrong. Nor is doing the best that you can with what you have. With regarding your appearance, wrong. But the bottom line is, as we begin this study of how we're to function within the local church, the focus should not be on ourselves. The focus belongs on Jesus Christ.